Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep. Heil by Lyle Monroe, aka Robert A. Heinlein. This story has an alternate title, more common title, which is Successful Operation. Um, This is first published in Futuria Fantasia, Volume 1, Number 4, which is dated Spring 1940, um, and ISFDB lists it as having come out in April 1940. This is one of very few public domain Robert A. Heinlein stories. Um, Basically, there's this, there's, uh, I believe there's another one, uh, might be The Man Who Traveled in Elephants. And there's half of uh, half of a serial, <laughs> like Tenderfoot in Space. I think maybe the first the first uh, part of the serial is in public domain, and the rest isn't. Uh, this is a guy who was very successful in science fiction. You may have heard of him, um, <laughs> but this is he says in another in an introduction not present in this original uh, publication that this was uh, right after its first sale. Um, and in that introduction, he says um, uh, basically that uh, the most important word in the English language that uh, a writer needs to learn is uh, the word no. And the reason he says this is because he gave this story to Ray Bradbury, uh, who ran Futuria Fantasia, and didn't get paid at all. And that is wrong. <laughs> Wow. Right? <laughs> yeah. And I think that has resonance for what's going on in the story. And I'm very, very interested in Robert A. Heinlein. I've read almost everything he's written. Um, there's a couple, well, there's basically one big novel of his that he wrote near the end of his life that I have not read yet. And there's a couple variants, like, uh, or unfinished books that were published after he was uh, alive. <laughs> Um, (laughs) posthumous publication and, you know, a few trivial essays here and there that I've missed, but I think I know the guy pretty well. And I can see right from the beginning, a lot of the things that he's interested in are in this little story. I agree fully. I, anyone who's read a lot of Heinlein will be, um, pleased, I think to see, uh, this, uh, although one could argue the opposite, that uh, my goodness, here we are um, with Heinlein being um, just you know a, a beginning, a beginner of, in his career. Um, he's only twenty-seven years old, um, and sorry, thirty-seven years old. Sorry, thirty-three years old. Got to get that right. He's thirty-three years old beginning as a writer and uh, it's true that from the very beginning he seemed to have a view of things that he stuck with almost exclusively for for much of his career um, he had some changes of heart and we could have a whole discussion mm-hmm. about Heinlein but but the things that are consistent with this story I think are worth our talking about once we have a, a look at the story I, I would point out at least according to what I've been able to uh, search down that the the better-known title, Successful Operation, um, was a better-known title that Heinlein himself gave the story in a 1980 collection. So 
he waited uh, 40 years to change the title. There is a, a long- 1970 collection that has uh, that has that title change, but I I think he's probably responsible for both titles. I, I don't know. That's the Sam Moskowitz collection. Um, I don't. I haven't seen a copy of this 1970 printing of that book. Yeah, I'm looking at that S- Futures of to Infinity uh, on ISFDB. I have not seen that book in real life either. But that's what I'm wondering. Yeah, it does. It? it does show. Um, uh, oh, oh, you know what? It does show it there as Heil. You're right. Yeah. So in 1980, that's right. So even after it had been reprinted. And I think the reason that that he may have changed it, that Heinlein may have changed it 40 years after the fact, is that some aspects of its timeliness may have become, it may have receded from the audience he was expecting to to hit with the re, the reprint. Um, so the, the the timeliness is an issue here. Too. Yeah, the the title "Successful Operation" also does a lot more work than Heil does. I think. Heil can be seen in a couple of ways within the story Ooh. and the context, but successful I operation. I, I, I disagree. I, Let's I, hear the story, yeah. then, and then we can have the we'll little debate. All, All right. right. Heil, with an exclamation point, by Lyle Monroe. How dare you make such a suggestion? The state physician doggedly stuck by his position. I would not make it, sire. If your life were not at stake, there is no other surgeon in the fatherland who can transplant a pituitary gland but Dr. Lance. You will operate. The medico shook his head. You would die, leader. My skill is not adequate, and unless the operation takes place at once, you will certainly die. The leader stormed about the apartment. He seemed about to give way to one of the girlish bursts of anger that even the interstate clique feared so much. Surprisingly, he capitulated. Bring him here, he ordered. Dr. Lance faced the leader with inherent dignity, a dignity and presence that three years of protective custody had been unable to shake. The pallor and gauntness of the concentration camp lay upon him, but his race was used to oppression. I see, he said. Yes, I see. I can perform that operation. What are your terms? Terms? The leader was aghast. Terms, you filthy swine. You are being given a chance to redeem, in part, the sins of your race. The surgeon raised his brows. Do you not think I know that you would not have sent for me had there been any other course available to you? Obviously, my services have become valuable. You'll do as you're told. You and your kind are lucky to be alive. Nevertheless, I shall not operate without my fee. I said you were lucky to be alive. The tone was an open threat. Lance spread his hands. Well, I'm an old man, the leader smiled. True. But I am informed that you have a a family. The surgeon moistened his lips. His Emma. They would hurt his Emma and his little Rose. But he must be brave, as Emma would have him be. He was playing for high stakes for all of them. They cannot be worse off dead, he answered firmly, than they are now. It was many hours before the leader was convinced that Lance could not be budged. He should have known the surgeon had learned fortitude at his mother's breast. What is your fee? 
a passport for myself and my family. Good riddance. My personal fortune restored to me very well to be paid in gold before I operate. The leader started to object automatically, then checked himself quickly. Let the presumptuous fool think so. It could be corrected after the operation. And the operation to take place in a hospital on foreign soil. Preposterous! I must insist. You do not trust me? Lon stared straight back into his eyes without replying. The leader struck him hard across the mouth. The surgeon made no effort to avoid the blow, but took it with no change of expression. You are willing to go through with it, Samuel? The younger man looked at Dr. Lon. You are willing to go through with it, Samuel? The younger man looked at Dr. Lance without fear as he answered, Certainly, doctor. I cannot guarantee that you will recover. The leader's pituitary gland is diseased. When I exchange it for your healthy one, your younger one may not be able to stand up under it. That is the chance you take. Besides, a complete transplanting has never been done before. I know it but I'm out of the concentration camp. Yes, yes, that is true. And if you do recover, you are free, and I will attend you myself until you are well enough to travel. Samuel smiled. It will be a positive joy to be sick in a country where there are no concentration camps. Very well, then. Let us commence. They returned to the silent, nervous group at the other end of the room. Grimly, the money was counted out, every penny that the famous surgeon had laid claim to before the leader had decided that men of his religion had no need for money. Lance placed half of the gold in a money belt and strapped it around his waist. His wife concealed the other half somewhere about her ample person. It was an hour and 20 minutes later that Lance put down the last instrument, nodded to the surgeons, assisting him, and commenced to strip off operating gloves. He took one last look at his two patients before he left the room. They were anonymous under the sterile gowns and dressings. Had he not known, he could not have guessed dictator from oppressed. Come to think of it, with the exchange of those two tiny glands, there was something of the dictator in his victim and something of the victim in the dictator. Dr. Lance returned to the hospital later in the day after seeing his wife and daughter safely settled in a first-class hotel. It was an extravagance in view of his uncertain prospects as a refugee, but they had enjoyed no luxuries for years back there. He didn't consider it his home country, and it was justified this once. He inquired at the office of the hospital for a second patient. The clerk looked puzzled, but but he is not here. Not here? Why, no, he was moved off at the same time as His Excellency, back to your country. Lance did not argue. The trick was obvious. It was too late to do anything for poor Samuel. He thanked his God that he had had the foresight to place himself and his family beyond the reach of such brutal injustice before operating. He thanked the clerk and left. The leader recovered consciousness at last. His brain was confused. Then he recalled the events before he had gone to sleep. The operation, it was over, and he was alive. He had never admitted to anyone how terribly frightened he had been at the prospect 
but he had lived. He had lived. He groped around for the bell cord and failing to find it gradually forced his eyes to focus on the room. What outrageous nonsense was this? This was no sort of a room for the leader to convalesce in. He took in his dirty whitewashed ceiling and the bare wooden floor with distaste and the bed. It was no more than a cot. He shouted. Someone came in, a man wearing a uniform of a trooper in his favorite corps. He started to give him the tongue lashing of his life before having him arrested, but he was cut short. Cut out the racket, you unholy pig. At first, he was too astounded to answer. Then he shrieked, stand at attention when you address the leader. Salute. The trooper looked dumbfounded at the sick man, so totally different in appearance from the leader. Then guffawed, he stepped to the cot, struck a pose with his right arm raised in salute. He carried a rubber truncheon in it. Heil to our leader, he shouted and brought his arm down smartly. The truncheon crashed into the sick man's cheekbone. Another trooper came in to see what the noise was while the first was still laughing at his witticism. What's up, Jan? Say, you'd better not handle that monkey too roughly. He'll still carried on the hospital list. He glanced casually at the bloody face. Him? Didn't you know? Jan pulled him to one side and whispered. The second man's eyes widened. He grinned. So they don't want him to get well, eh? Well, I could use a little exercise this morning. Let's get fats, the other suggested. He's always so very amusing with his ideas. Good idea. He stepped to the door and bellowed, hey, fats. They didn't really start on him until fats was there to help. Yeah. Um, So I think a little context again. 1940. Um, spring 1940. So uh, he's getting all sorts of stuff wrong in a certain sense. Um, obviously, this never actually happened as far as we know. Uh, <laughs> there's that, too. Um, I think some of the meta stuff is pretty interesting. But as a story itself, it's it's pretty, pretty good. Um, and this is a theme that I think uh, Heinlein came back to. Um, he had operations, uh, you know, surgical operations in his own life. I think even before this, um, he was uh, kicked out of the uh, Navy. I guess kicked out is not the right. He was cashiered out of the Navy um, for, uh, I think it was consumption. What's that disease called? Tuberculosis. Tuberculosis, yeah. He had lung problems, and he had lung problems throughout a lot of his life. He later had uh, an aneurysm or a stroke or something as well. Uh, but but he had had operations earlier, I think, in his life. Um, but uh, late in life, he wrote a novel called I Will Fear No Evil, uh, in which a very old man um, has an operation um, and is placed, his, his brain is placed in the body of a young woman. Um, whose brain was damaged beyond repair. Um, and then they kind of resemble each other in some ways. Um, so uh, there's a hidden thing in here. I think the pituitary operation was a little more extensive than it says. A pituitary <laughs> gland is inside, deep inside a person's brain, right? It's basically uh, at the base of your brain. And um, there have been speculations about it and other parts of your brain being the thing that is you. Um, 
But I don't think that that's exactly necessarily what's going on in the story. I think maybe our doctor is getting a kind of quasi-revenge rather than performing the operation as was required. What do you think? Oh, I agree completely. It doesn't say. That's why we, that's, that's well, but that's why we have the, the line about how we couldn't help poor Samuel. Right. I think what he was expecting was that Samuel would remain in the foreign country in the leader's uh, body. Right. And the, the only thing would be to have to conceal his physical identity, but Samuel would have escaped while the leader would be in the wrong body and nobody would uh, would think him to be the leader anymore. So I, I, I think that it was intended to be um, yeah. revenge. So uh, why do you think he does it this way? Uh, there's a movie called... Um Rogue Mail, which is based on a novel called Rogue Mail, and both of them do this. They, they, they're both. Uh, the movie came out, I think, after World War II, but the first one, the, this novel, came out thirty nine, and it's basically it's a plot to kill Hitler story, but there's no Hitler mentioned. It just you know you're left to infer it, and that's throughout this. The only thing that tells us you know this is Hitler for sure, basically, is the title Heil, right? Because in the story, it's Hale, and he's called Leader with a capital L, uh, which is, you know, Fuhrer. It's supposed to be Hitler, right? I think this is 1940. Um, America is interestingly denying uh, – much of America is denying its knowledge of what's going on in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, we knew what was going on. We have uh, State Department cables. Um, uh, about what's going on as as early as the uh, the establishment of the first concentration camp in 1933, um, Dachau, outside of Munich, um, and we have already by 1940 the the laws that um, have made Jews unable to own property and so on. Kristallnacht is two years before this. Uh, so we know a lot about these things. And in 1940, it's in people's minds, but they don't want to believe it. America doesn't want to believe it, in part because America has its own um, stake in anti-Semitism and would rather not feel a moral obligation to intervene. And you can see some of that here. But I think enough was already known that we would understand Heil um, Heil is the, the – the, we would have seen on movie tone news, right? We would have seen people going Heil and pictures, uh, f- film clips of, of Nazi rallies. Um, these these were well known. The German-American Bund had already had massive, massive uh, meetings in Madison Square Garden in New York. Uh, the word leader is interesting. Uh, the German is Führer. Mm-hmm. That's what leader means. And – as long as we're going to take a look at this and ask what it means, and I think we need to recognize that that Heinlein, a German name, um, Heinlein probably knew what Heil meant also. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember my father taught me because he took German in high school. Um, I remember sitting around the, the table one night and he started singing Stille Nacht, Heilige Nacht. Right. Um, Holy night. Uh, He was singing a Christmas carol in German that he had learned in school. Mm. An interesting thing for the uh, New York City school system to teach to Jewish kids. Anyway, um, Heilig means holy. Heil means salvation. 
It's a noun that means salvation. And when people go, Heil Hitler, they are actually praying for Hitler's salvation. It doesn't mean, hi there, Hitler. It means, <laughs> right? It, it, it means something. Yeah. And it it's makes like a him toast. into, it, it is indeed, it, but it's a toast to a revered, respected person. You know, it is it is a wish for your health. Yeah, hell, um, hail, H A L E. It is. That's one of the that's one of the meanings for it. But not as I say in that that Christmas Carol. It's not it's not the most statistically common. So we know what's going on in America. We know that there are these concentration camps, and we also understand that there are the, the concentration camps are aimed against Jews. So all of this stuff about, you know, you could redeem your race. Mm -hmm. um, of course you want your money. <laughs> but look at how Heinlein has woven in some of these anti-Semitic tropes in an acceptable way. Mm -hmm. It's not acceptable to have the Germans be dehumanizing and brutal. But it's okay to have his Emma conceal money somewhere about her ample person. Right. It's okay for the Jewish doctor to require his fee in advance and in gold, mm. right? It's, it's okay for him to seek his own personal salvation by trickery and hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. um, the portrait of the Jew here is justified because of his victimhood but it's still that anti-Semitic portrait of the Jew. And it seems to me that those two things work together here to nicely reflect the ambivalence that America felt about what they were learning mm. was happening in Europe. Yeah, it's a, it's kind of a funny situation. Um, he, We're supposed to hate Hitler in the story. <laughs> it's, it's of not, course. Um, and they always... This is sort of like a, you know, Schickel Gruber. That's one of the slurs that they they put on Hitler. Um, here, right. Heinlein says um, uh, he seemed to give way to one of the girlish uh, bursts of anger that even the inner yes. state clique feared so much. Any slur that you can throw on Hitler, nobody's going to defend, right? Um, right. Which is, I think what makes the story weaker than it could be um because I, I, I get yeah you know hitler's a bad guy i get it. <laughs> i get it but it's not because he's a he's girlish or you know it's it, you know so making fun of his mustache or whatever it is those are not the important things right <laughs> those are not the important things but um the the funny thing is um, I was mentioning that introduction that I, it must be in one of those uh, later collections of Heinlein stories. You said 1980 or something like that. Yes, 1980. expanded universe or maybe. Anyways, um, his he does this all the time in his fiction. He has a character stubbornly refuse to negotiate with another character, um, mm -hmm. and and has marshaled his his arguments and his thoughts and all that stuff so that the other character has to give in. And that's exactly what happens here. Um, our, our surgeon hero, who's, you know, uh, somewhat ambiguous in his morality, but, you know, we, we are fine with it because it's Hitler. 
Um, right. <laughs> uh, he he is in such a position that even though it's a gamble, um, he thinks he's going to win because nobody can do the job like he can, or nobody can do the job and have the leader survive. So he negotiates and. A lot of the very limited text that we have here, it's about eight and a half minutes to read, right, is just about that negotiation. Um, I want this, I want that, I want this, and how dare you, right? There's this whole back and forth. But that's actually what that introduction was about. An author shouldn't have to uh, accept no payment for a story, but this was written at a time where I hadn't learned that. That's what he's saying in that introduction to this story. <laughs> and so often when you're reading a, a story by Heinlein, if it's the man who sold the moon or whatever story it is, you have this unreasonable uh, situation where it's set up so that it only can show how you have to be in the perfect negotiating position in order to get what you want. And that's the only way. And to me, it, it it's always been a major weakness in Heinlein's writing. It's almost like he doesn't understand the way you get better wages is you have a lot of unions. He thinks you just have to have exclusive monopoly on something. The problem is, is almost nobody ever has that, right? So this situation where there's only one doctor in the entire world who can possibly do this operation... Yeah, good luck with that, bud. That's never never been the case, right? There's always someone who can do the same job as somebody else. And yeah, there might be differences, but that that situation is the essence of the relationships in this story. I think what you're doing here, Jesse, is um, offering a, a perceptive critique of something that is usually thought of as quite positive. Mm -hmm. um, the the so-called Heinlein hero, um, which has been written about... Um, the competent in, in man many, who can shoe a ways. horse and coal a right. train and build a house and do his own and, back surgery. <laughs> right. It's, it's a competent man who does not seek a significant position of authority does not seek conflict, but will rise to the occasion. Yes. And is chosen, in fact, to lead when others have failed. Uh, the roads must roll mm. is uh, an early famous example of that, where, you know, the, 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 the lieutenant decides to supplant the captain or whatever it is, mm -hmm. because the meritocratic system of the military, which Heinlein very much admires, mm -hmm. he managed after not being able to stay in the Navy, to go to work as a technical uh, employee of the Navy Yard during the war. Right? So he still wanted to contribute to the war effort. He believed in the notion that your rank tells you where you belong. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the Heinlein hero doesn't w aspire to high rank, but he has it within him. He is, in a way... Um, a Rousseauvian noble savage, yes. except in a technological world. And the, the problem with that in the modern world is exactly the one that you have highlighted so nicely. Single individuals can't usually solve global problems anymore. They, even if it seems that there is an individual, 
that individual is going to have to rely on others around him. Even the Führer has got to have other people watching over his anesthetized body if he intends to come out of this properly. And in fact, they weren't watching carefully enough to know what happened in that operation. Right. The the doctor who called him sire. Right. Um, throwing us back to a feudal system where there really is a single individual who can control everybody under him. The doctor who called him sire said he didn't have the skill to perform the operation, but that didn't mean that he didn't have the knowledge to appreciate the operation. Mm -hmm. But, but the Führer engages no one to actually um, preserve his own safety. So the Heinlein hero, the doctor, is confronting another single individual. And that, too, turns out to be um, often the case, but not so much in Heinlein. There's the single individual who needs to be combated follows more from Dracula, the old upper class. But in Heinlein... The enemy turns out to be, again and again, corporate America, large organizations, bureaucracy. cultural yep. blindness, bureaucracy, and so on. And so in that regard, this story, although it predicts so many of the stories to come, is unusual. And maybe the fact that it's unusual um, it correlates somehow with the fact that Heinlein didn't demand payment it, it, he learned better yeah i i also think that this is looking back and and protesting the fact that that's what he takes away from this story that, that he thinks is important is that i forgot i didn't know the lesson that i learned need to learn so well and this is one i've heard harlan ellison say as well you know first rule author gets paid right um uh, ray bradbury wasn't doing this Ten cent magazine uh, that he's making in his basement for money. Yeah, he had a price on the front, but if you look at those notes at the bottom, you right. know that are at the uh, on the t table of contents page, they're a mockery of of the professional magazines. So you look down there and you say, "Oh, uh, what, what are these tiny little words at the bottom?" It says, "Futuria Fantasia is published irregularly and gestated at the Dow Jones buying level of ten cents an issue. The fifth issue will be." Scaring you around about Halloween. Send your dime to the editor, Bray Bradbury, or Bradbury at blah, 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 California. Contributions will be happily fondled and sewed up in a green velvet sack. All stories submitted must be shaved in the company of adult Martians. So um, all of those sentences are, are mockeries of the sentences that are at the bottoms of, of more professional magazines. The fact that Heinlein gets a favor from a guy he respects, Ray Bradbury, a guy who's been writing longer than he has, and says, hey, uh, I love your, your writing. Uh, you got anything for me? And, of course, Heinlein's like, I should get paid because he's trying to get, become a professional writer. And looking back, he says, you know, the one thing I regret in my life is not getting paid for this tiny little short story. Look, he got paid in subsequent publications, is what I'm thinking. But it, it, it was it was all about the principle, all about the principle of the thing and putting yourself in that position. So 
I love reading Heinlein because I, I feel like I'm arguing with a guy who is a deep thinker, but who's got some misunderstandings. And his misunderstandings of reality help me understand reality better because it clarifies my own thinking. And I think that that's kind of what he's doing when he's changing the title to Successful Operation. It makes clear... It makes clear what is a little less clear in the story, that this was intended. You know, the one thing that happens repeatedly in the story is the smashing of the mouth. The surgeon is smashed in the mouth by the dictator. And later, the dictator is smashed in the mouth by one of, one of uh, the soldiers of his corps he most appreciated. Right. So basically, an SS man smashes Hitler in the face. SS are like Hitler's bodyguards, and there he's getting smashed in the face by his own bodyguard. It's a, ooh, it's an ironic revenge, right? It's way less clear, I think, without that successful operation as the title, that this was all intended and not a side effect. Whether it was intended or not is something uh, only a dead man can tell us. Mm. What you and I infer from it, however, would take a while more. Fortunately, even as early in his career as this story is, Heinlein's work is so provocative that there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.